This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Thank you to the Carter organizers for inviting me to do this talk and share with you some of the exciting work we've been doing over the years on the interaction between infectious agents and our own human body system. So the title of my talk, Are There Distinctly Human Infectious Diseases? Uh, but since I'm a pathologist, I'm going to show you a lot about some of the pathology that goes on uh, after the infectious diseases have infected us. Um, so this is the list of different topics that we had discussed over the years as the candidates for distinctly human diseases. There are a whole lot of definite candidates like myocardial infarction and carcinomas, cancers of epithelial origin. But as you can see, most of the items on this list are infectious diseases. And so today I was, um, and this next slide shows you in red, many all of the infectious diseases that were on that list. So as you can see from this next image, uh, data compiled from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, uh, in 1900, most of the deaths occurred uh, due to infect diseases, as you can see, gastrointestinal infections, tuberculosis, pneumonia or influenza. Now in 2010, most of the deaths in humans occurred because of cancer or heart disease. Heart disease is the primary cause, and infectious diseases has fallen to a very small percentage. Now, the reason for that, of, of course, is probably due to the use of vaccines. And um, most uh, the first vaccine that helped eradicate a disease was smallpox, and now we're working on polio. A lot of the different vaccines to these different diseases have been discovered and are being used effectively. Um, and as, as uh, the causes of death in chimpanzees, though, are a little different, as you can see here, uh, a whole list that is hard for you to see. But in an uh, autopsy review of about 35 years of data, they showed that it's cardiac events that causes the highest mortality in chimpanzees. But these cardiac events have a different pathology. It's not coronary thrombosis that happens in humans. It's interstitial fibrosis in chimpanzees. So now diving into some of the diseases that may be in distinctly human, I'll start off with talking about human influenza and then give you a little background on some of our work on typhoid, cholera, and then gonorrhea. So as an introduction, um, as I wanted to talk to you about the cell surfaces, as you all concentrated on DNA, making RNA, going on to make protein, but the cell is not really done until it makes the surface carbohydrates, which are called glyc glycans, glycoproteins, glycolipids. And at the very tip of these glycans are these uh, diamond-shaped structures um, that are known as silic acids. These silic acids are the terminal very end monosaccharides attached to the underlying cell surface glycoconjugates and have been shown to show many important roles in um, the microbinding that leads to infection. That will be the um, topic of the talk today. Regulation of the immune response, progression and spread of human malignancies, and in certain aspects of human evolution. Now, these silic acids can be uh, attached to the underlying glycans in different linkages. These linkages, as depict, depicted here, may be alpha-2-3-linked, alpha-2-3-linked, 
to the underlying glycan, alpha-2-6 linked to the underlying glycan, or alpha-2-8 linked to the underlying glycan. Now, why am I showing this? It's because we've shown in our several studies that most pathogens like to bind to the alpha-2-3 linked salic acids as shown here. But human influenza virus is unique in that it likes to bind to the alpha-2-6 linked salic acids. In some studies we did a couple of decades ago with Pascal Gagnon, here are some sections of the human trachea, sections of the chimp and gorilla and mouse tracheal epithelium. And the blue is the binding of the SNA light lectin, which specifically binds to the alpha 2 6 linked cyclic acids. And you can see here it's very on the outer edge of the epithelial cells, there's a lumen of the trachea. It's not present on the epithelial cell edges in the chimp or the gorilla or the mouse. There's some present in the mucin, but this is what the flu virus sees as it's, as it's passing through and likes to bind to on the very edge, the alpha-2-6 linked salic acids. Further studies done by Miriam Cohen in uh, Dr. Gagnon's lab, where she used the three different influenza viruses depicted here. Um, the influenza viruses, uh, you've heard them called H1N1 or H3N2. So H refers to the hemagglutinin, and that is what allows the virus to adhere, agglutinate. And then it uses the N or the neuraminidase as like scissors to clip through the mucus and then allows the virus to enter further and attach to the um, epithelial cells under here. This is the negative control showing no attachment. So her study showed that the... Um, human influenza viruses actually uses neuraminidase to, um, after the attachment to attach to the underlying structure. Um, the Tamiflu, the mechanism of action of Tamiflu is to inactivate this neuraminidase. So even though the virus may attach, it cannot go further and infect the underlying epithelial cells. So um, that was the virus in, um, affecting our human tracheal mucosa. Now I'll go on to talk about the silic acids further. There are uh, two major kinds of silic acids on mammalian cell surfaces. There's the new 5AC and the new 5GC, and the only difference between the two is one oxygen atom. The new 5GC is shown to be missing in humans because there is the CMH gene which converts new 5AC to new 5GC. The CMH gene has been was shown to be inactivated in humans about two to three million years ago. So humans make AC and not new 5GC. So we were able to make a mouse model which lacked the CMH gene in studies of human disease. So this is called the CMH null mouse. These ha animals have been studied for many years and have been observed to demonstrate a lot of human-like human diseases like atherosclerosis, carcinomas as depicted here, age-related hearing loss, delayed wound healing, uh, increased inflammation and immune response, altered susceptibility to mus muscular dis dystrophy. And interestingly, these CMH null mice show the ability to run longer than controls. That's why human can run marathons, whereas chimpanzees uh, don't really. They basically jump up and down. Um, so we use the CMH null mouse in a lot, um, studying a lot of these human diseases. So the first one I was going to talk about was cholera. Vibrio cholera was first isolated um, by Filippo Pacini, and his discovery was not widely known until Robert Koch, who worked on tuberculosis and, and described the mechanisms about 30, 30 years later. And Koch had these 
postulate saying that the microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease. The microorganism must be isolated from the disease organism grown in pure culture. The cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into healthy organism. And the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. So those were his postulates. But when he started studying cholera in 1884, he wrote in the British Medical Journal saying that all these, although these experiments were constantly repeated with material from fresh cholera cases, our mice remained healthy. Then made experiments on monkeys, cats, poultry, dogs, and various other mammals, but were never able to arrive at anything in animals similar to the cholera process. So Vibri cholera does not naturally cause diarrhea in adult mammals other than humans or in gene-altered models. Now, cholera is a non-invasive pathogen. Symptomatology occurs due to the production of an exotoxin, encoded by a virulent factor. The toxin has an A subunit and 5B subunit, and we've shown that these, um, the B sub- subunit is what binds to the ganglioside receptor on the intestinal epithelial cells. And then, through several steps, intracellular cyclic adenosine monophosphate opens the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator, and chloride ions are released into the lumen, and so this causes the epithelial cells of the small intestine to secrete fluids and electrolytes and cause the uh, watery diarrhea that can only be treated by extensive IV fluid replacement. So here's a diagram showing the cholera um, bacterium invading through the mucus and then using neuraminidases to expose the ganglioside receptor on the surface of epithelial cells to which it then binds. So the so here is a complex mixer of ganglicides, all containing salic acids, but the, it's been shown that the vibrio, vibrio cholera uses these neuraminidases to finally uh, expose the GM1 ganglicide to which it then binds. So the GM1 ganglicide is a component of the cell plasma membrane, which modulates cell signal transduction events. So we use the same age um, null mice to study the cholera process. And here are intestinal loops that were infected with cholera from the wild type and from the same age null mice, showing distended ileal loops filled with watery fluid in the same age null mice, but not in the wild type. Then when we use sections from these same animals and saw that, saw that there isn't much binding seen with the cholera toxin by itself, but then when we use the neuraminidase, you can see lots of binding to the same age null mice epithelial cells in different concentrations, um, but which is not present in the wild type mice. So this again demonstrates that it binds to the underlying ganglioside receptor. So the next candidate that I was going to talk about was typhoid fever. It, it's caused by salmonella uh, enterica cirovar typhi, results in 200,000 annual deaths world, worldwide. There's the toxic um, subunit and then the beta subunit, which is the binding part, which specifically recognizes glycans present in the human-enriched salic acid new 5 ac So here is a diagram of the GI tract in the human adult which if you go down into that tube and take sections and look at it under the microscope, you can see these fimbriae, finger-like um, villi, which are, uh, allow a lot of the absorption to occur in the small intestine. And under the epithelium um, are these lymphoid pious patches. The surface epithelium that lies above these lymphoid pious patches are called M-cells, and those are the cells with which the typhoid 
um, bacillus interacts with before it starts invading. So here again is a picture of the normal small intestine and a blown up view of that and a diseased small intestine full of inflammatory cells and edema. So and we've shown that the typhoid toxin binding is human specific. As you can see here, it recognizes new 5 AC enriched silic acids and not new 5 GC um, silic acids. And then frozen sections of small intestines from humans or chimpanzees using fluorescently labeled typhoid toxin or its binding defective PLTB mutant as a negative control shows binding on the human sections and no binding to chimpanzee sections of small intestine. Um, last thing to remember about typhoid toxin, that the asymptomatic carrier state of some diseases was described first in typhoid. So, um, so Carl Joseph Ebert was um, described the bacillus that caused typhoid in 1880 and four years later a pathologist. As we pathologists continue to do demonstrating uh, the, the actual process of the disease that actually happens confirmed this link named bacillus uh, typhi, which is not known today as Salmonella enterica. So um, the in asymptomatic carrier state was first described by this person, Mary Malone, who was then known as Typhoid Mary because she was an Irish-born cook, believed to have infected 51 people with typhoid fever, and the first person in the U.S. identified as the asymptomatic carrier of the disease because she persisted in working as a cook by which she exposed others to the disease. She was twice forcibly isolated by authorities and died after a total of nearly three decades in isolation. So what was non, not known then was that the bacillus actually resides in the gallbladder, hides out, and one treatment for the asymptomatic carrier would have been to remove the gallbladder, uh, but that was not known at that time. Now, of course, um, that is a treatment to avoid the asymptomatic carrier state of typhoid. The next thing he's going to talk about was gonorrhea. Neisseria gonorrhea causes the sexually transmitted disease gonorrhea. WHO estimates about 106 million cases per year. About a one-third of these are multi-drug resistant. There's a high frequency of asymptomatic infections occurring in women. Untreated gonorrhea can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease and infertility. Gonorrhea has not been observed in other species. The disease model in chimpanzee was not successful. The molecular evidence is that the human factor H binds directly to one of the proteins on the surface of the gonococcus and leads to serum res resistance only in humans. So here uh, are some pathology pictures um, of a uterus. This is the uterus, the fallopian tube, and the ovaries. This is a uterus and fallopian tubes that are removed from a patient that had pelvic inflammatory disease with fallopian tubes that actually were absolutely swollen and full of pus. Um, if, if the uterus was allowed to remain, this would heal and cause scarring and lead to um, uh, infertility. This is a picture of a uterus that was removed and opened up. Uh, this is the cervix on the outside. This is the endocervix and the endometrium. If you looked at sections of this under the microscope, this part, the outside of the cervix and the, and the vagina contains, is made up of squamous epithelium, whereas the inner inside is columnar epithelium, as is shown here. Uh, the gonococcal uh, bacteria like to bind to the columnar epithelium, shown here. And as shown in this slide, the gonococcus, the components, is made up of uh, pili and several different proteins and a lipopolysaccharide. 
this is a scanning electron micrograph of fallopian tube explants showing non-ciliated and ciliated cells and showing that the gonococcus actually binds to the non-ciliated and not the ciliated cells. And this is a picture full, pulled from the internet reminded to tell you that the gonococcus acts like a wolf in sheep's clothing because what it does is, here's a diagram showing the diplococcus and gonorrhea with the cell surface proteins. It acquires silic acids from the host using enzymes from the host, and this silic acid then interacts with the cell surface receptors, which are SIGLEC, which are silic acid recognizing lectin-like receptors on the surfaces of the columnar epithelial cells or the endocervix. So that's how the binding occurs and then further infection. So these are photographs of um, images from human cervix showing expression of these receptors on the columnar epithelium of the cervix. And when we looked at um, chimp um, epithelium, you can be shown here that the human siglex, which are shown in black, bind better to the siglex than the chimp siglex. So um, that brings me to the end of my talk with this list that I showed you earlier, which are candidates for distinctly human diseases. And today I spent time talking about four of these diseases. So infectious diseases are caused by a variety of pathogens. The human body is made up of about 10 to 13 cells and hosts about 10 to 14 other microbes, which are bacterial, fungal, protozoal, and non-pathogenic viruses, all of which part are part of the normal flora. Pathogenic organisms are distinct from normal flora and had developed highly specialized mechanisms to invade and elicit specific responses which contribute to survival. Bacteria are classified into spheres, rods, and spiral cells, and virulence genes confer the ability to infect and may be carried by bacteriophages or bacterial viruses as in vibrio cholera organisms which cause cholera. So that brings me to the end of this talk. And thank you for your attention. Um, I hope I've communicated some of my excitement in discovering some of the pathology behind some of the events that occurred in infectious diseases. And perhaps I may have inspired some of the medical students out there listening to this to consider pathology as your career because you can not only do research and clinical, and uh, be a physician's physician in your future. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, today I'm tasked with talking to you about the microbiome and infections of the reproductive tract in human females. I will note that my academic home has been at Washington University for the past uh, 10 plus years, but in a matter of weeks, I'll be moving to the University of California, San Diego. Very excited about that. Okay, so by now, we're all well aware that the human microbiome um, is important and has key roles in human physiology. And um, this is, while understudied, very important in the female reproductive tract of humans as well. In fact, in the human reproductive tract, uh, microbes have a very strong influence um, on reproductive success. And as you'll see, um, this could have potential for uh, selective uh, advantages and disadvantages uh, in the human population. So to give you a broad overview of the human vaginal microbiota, um, you could sort of think of the um, vaginal microbiota as falling into one of two very large groups. So one of those is lactobacillus dominant microbiome. 
Um, typically, these are dominated by Lactobacillus crispatus or Lactobacillus inners. Um, you'll see here an example uh, from a single individual of a Lactobacillus crispatus dominant microbiome. And then in contrast, uh, some women have a much more diverse microbiome that rather than being occupied mainly by a single species, has quite a large number of, of species associated with it. Now, one interesting feature of these diverse microbiomes is that they are also um, often have the feature of having 10 to 100 fold more abundant bacteria present uh, within this niche. So one of the things I'll call out to you now, because it'll become more important later, is that Gardnerella vaginalis um, is often a major component of this diverse microbiome. Now, um, these diverse microbiomes are often called um, bacterial vaginosis, and we'll be talking about that term quite a bit more. Um, anywhere from 23 to 29% of women worldwide uh, have this condition, BV, um, and it's been associated with a number of poor reproductive health outcomes, which we will also discuss. Before we get there, I'd like to introduce you to some of the clinical features of bacterial vaginosis. So back in the 1950s, this guy named Gardner um, and, and colleagues uh, had worked up some of the features of what would become known as bacterial vaginosis. So they found that, that women with BV had um, high numbers of exfoliated epithelial cells coated with bacteria, which they called clue cells. This is shown here. You can see a normal epithelial cell and then one that is um, just covered in bacteria. They also found that women with this condition had abnormally thin mucus secretions, a sharp amine odor upon potassium hydroxide treatment, and a higher than normal pH. Now, one of the things that Gardner also found, um, and that was reconfirmed upon a lot of the molecular techniques that were used later, which I have already showed you data about, um, was that these women also had overgrowth of cocobacilli, um, and this turned out to be Gardnerella vaginalis, as I've already shown you. So another way to, to look at the microbiome is um, by doing a gram stain um, and looking under the microscope. So what you'll see uh, with women that have a lactobacillus dominant microbiome shown here is that you'll see a lot of long gram positive um, rods uh, that are characteristic of lactobacilli. Whereas in the context of bacterial vaginosis, you instead see um, many diverse morphotypes, not a lot of these long gram positive rods um, but, but probably a lot higher number of bacteria here as well. So why do we even really care about this? Is this just another pattern of the microbiome? Um, this is potentially you know, important um, both to anthropogeny potentially, but um, especially to, to women's health here and now. So women with bacterial vaginosis have an increased likelihood of sexually transmitted infections of all kinds, bacterial, viral and parasitic. They have a higher likelihood of being infertile, of having urinary tract infections, pelvic inflammatory disease, and a whole host of other things, including uh, being vaginally colonized by pathogens, 
experiencing um, uh, ascending infections up into the intrauterine space of the placenta and amniotic fluid, um, as shown here in the picture, and also of experiencing things like premature rupture of membranes and preterm labor, um, and ultimately um, having a baby that is admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. So any one of these factors could be uh, drivers of selection. And just to further emphasize that, uh, preterm birth is now the leading cause of death in children under five. Um, and as you can see here, um, and it's believed that about 40% of preterm births are caused by infection. So people have also compared um, the microbiome in women who have delivered preterm versus those who have delivered full term and found that um, high levels of lactobacilli are often found to be protective um, in term deliveries, whereas um, they're found at lower levels in preterm deliveries, whereas Gardnerella is sort of the opposite finding um, where you see that at lower levels in term deliveries and higher levels in preterm deliveries. So now I want to give you a, a little bit of interesting um, context from recent human history, um, considering vaginal care products. So going back to the 1950s, um, we have individuals like um, Dr. Gardner, who uh, were telling women vaginal douching is unnecessary. Um, but around the same time, um, there was a, you know, a, a very widespread advertising campaign by Lysol um, in which they were trying to convince women that they should use Lysol as a vaginal douche product for their complete feminine hygiene. Now, this is quite disturbing um, and becomes more so um, when they start talking about um, Lysol protecting your daintiness. Um, now I'll let you all be appalled by your own Google searches on this. Um, I'll give you one further example of a quote from one of these ads that a young wife should beware of this grave womanly offense. And um, by grave womanly offense, they mean not sanitizing your vagina with Lysol. So Today, one would like to think that um, we're in a different place. We still have sexual health practitioners that are telling us you don't need to douche. And you know, one of the things I've heard over and over again is the vagina is like a self-cleaning oven. You don't need to clean it out up there. Um, however, if you look at any, in any grocery store or pharmacy, there's an entire section that's devoted to these products. And so, you know, the question is, um, what message are we sending? So how did we get here? Um, and you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with anthropogeny? So um, in the next few slides, um, I'm going to tell you more about the human vaginal microbiome and the, and the niche, which is uniquely acidic. I'll tell you about um, the BV-like microbiome and try to make an argument that it might actually be the ancestral state. Um, and then begin a discussion of how this might relate to human origins and evolution. Um, and, you know, one of the prevailing ideas is that, you know, the good bacteria, the lactobacilli are protective 
Uh, but one of the one of the other things that I would like to introduce is that um, you know there's this flip side of the coin where bad bacteria may predispose to disease, particularly if those bad bacteria are human specific. Um, that might be of interest um, to anthropogeny. So going back to this uh, lactobacillus dominant microbiome. Um, it's important to note that lactobacilli are lactic acid bacteria. Um, and, you know, one of the features that happens when you have uh, an abundance of these lactobacilli present is that they're able to um, acidify the environment. So you see on the right side of the screen here that, um, you know, these, these organisms produce a lot of lactate. And those very high levels of lactate um, end up with a, a very characteristic acidic pH in the human vagina. So now I'm showing you um, some data that has been published in the literature where, you know, they're taking um, vaginal pH measured in many different studies and, and plotting it all on the same graph here. And so one of the things you can immediately see is that in the context of a, a, a you know, normal, healthy woman, um, without BV, that you have a, a very low acidic pH, lower than any of the other measurements on this graph. Um, and, you know, what you'll also see is that if you look at the human with BV, there's a higher vaginal pH, and this is consistent with some of the other diagnostic information that I've given you. Um, but immediately below that, you see that at least in one study of a human chimpanzee and of olive baboons, that um, there are there's somewhat lower um, pH than any of the other mammals, and this is tracking um, more closely with what you see in um, in the context of bacterial vaginosis. So this is a first suggestion that the vaginal microbiome in humans and its acidic pH um, may not be completely unique to humans. However, I think we have to take um, some of this a little bit with a grain of salt. Um, the vaginal microenvironment um, and the microbiota can fluctuate quite a bit. And this is another set of studies plotted on the same graph um, where they're essentially looking at how the pH changes with fluctuating estrogen levels. And in virtually every context that you see on this graph, when there's high levels of estrogen, um, it tends to support bacteria that produce um, acids and result in a lower vaginal pH. So you can see here that um, even the P here, which is for possum, you know, even though it's, you know, obviously not even a, a primate, it's still kind of falling into this um, five to six pH range, um, which is similar to, to the context of BV as well. So it may just be that, you know, fluctuating estrogen levels, um, and there may not be quite enough individuals um, studied to, to really fully understand this. But regardless, what you can take away from this graph, um, looking down below here, is that, you know, humans um, have this, you know, characteristically low vaginal pH, which appears to be lower than all of these other animals that have been studied. So moving now into the idea that the diverse BV-like microbiome may actually be the ancestral state, I wanted to show you some data. This is from uh, the northern pigtail macaque, but there's um, similar data that's been presented um, from a number of other non-human primates. And what you can see here is that this is a diverse microbiome. And this is also true of the other non-human primates that have been studied. 
there are a number of taxonomic groups that you're seeing here um, that have also been described in the context of bacterial vaginosis, in including Atopobium and Snethia, Prevotella, and a number of other organisms here. Now, there are some limitations um, to the data that have been presented in the field. Uh, the numbers of individuals are rather low. There's not a lot of studies that have compared captive versus wild animals, and the hormonal status of these individuals is often unknown. Now, one thing that I do want to note is that um, in my review of the literature, I've not found any studies that have been described where Gardnerella is a part of the uh, non-human primate vaginal microbiome. So that could be significant. Um, so some, some things have been put forward in terms of making evolutionary sense of the human vaginal microbiota. Non-human mammals um, don't have dominant lactobacilli. Um, which therefore couldn't be an absolute requirement for a healthy vagina. Another point is that the, the BV microbiome has taxonomic parallels with, with other primate vaginal microbiomes, as we just discussed, and may be the ancestral state. Um, and finally, uh, selection for lactobacillus dominance uh, could have come about due to the relative protection uh, afforded from sexually transmitted and intrauterine infections um, and their um, subsequent effects on reproductive success. So coming back to this idea of whether Gardnerella contributes to adverse reproductive outcomes in humans, um, most women, in fact, harbor Gardnerella at some level, um, but as I've shown you, it's often the most abundant species in women with BV. It actually comprises a very diverse set of organisms that haven't been that well studied yet, um, in my lab, we've shown that Gardnerella vaginalis can cause features of BV in a mouse model. And in fact, when we do co-infections uh, with other organisms, we find that Gardnerella vaginalis can encourage the pathogenesis of other organisms. So I'll just give you one brief example of that. In a mouse model of pregnancy, um, we found that Gardnerella vaginalis can encourage uterine infection by another human pathogen, group B streptococcus. Um, now here, what you're looking at um, is the, the number of, of pregnant females um, where, where you actually see evidence of live bacteria coming out of uterine or placental tissues. Um, when GBS is delivered in high numbers, um, all of the animals that were studied um, got infected uh, in the upper reproductive tract. Um, when GBS was introduced at lower numbers, um, there were no infections. Um, of, the, of the uterine or placental tissue. However, under this condition of, of lower group B strep inoculum to the vagina, um, when it's delivered in the context of Gardnerella vaginalis, you again see that about half of the animals develop um, uterine and placental infections. So, um, you know, it may be that, uh, that Gardnerella vaginalis um, being present within the vaginal microbiome of humans may be um, helping to encourage other pathogens to be more pathogenic. So going from there, I'd like to tell you a little bit about a, a particular virulence factor of Gardnerella vaginalis, um, an enzyme called sialidase. Now, so Gardnerella here produces uh, sialidase, which we're showing as scissors here. Um, and you can see in the graph on the right that women with bacterial vaginosis have, um, you know, high levels of vaginal sialidase activity, whereas women without BV do not. Um, it's believed that Gardnerella is the primary contributor of this enzyme um, to the vaginal fluids, and it can not only cleave off the sialic acids, but then um, use them and catabolize them and grow um, by being able to use them. 
And then this allows for a depletion of the sialic acids from the mucosal surface. So we think sialidase is important because it's been independently associated with reduced mucus viscosity and increased risk of preterm birth, placental infections, um, as well as recurrent BV. It also liberates sialic acids that can be used by, by other organisms that don't have their own sialidases. So you might be asking yourself, what are sialic acids anyway? Um, so sialic acids are carbohydrate residues that are rich in mucosal secretions, but also on cell surfaces. Um, they're shown in, in these little red diamonds here. And so sialidase um, may be important both for its ability to cleave sialic acids from, you know, these secreted molecules, um, but also from cell surfaces. So we've done some biochemical experiments where we can show that, um, you know, a preparation of mucin um, shown here is highly um, viscous compared to water, which is expected. Uh, when you treat that with sialidase, um, treating with sialidase is sufficient to substantially reduce the viscosity, um, whereas you can get some of that back by introducing a sialidase inhibitor. Now, we think this could be important because secreted glycans and mucins are an important component of the mucus plug, which blocks the opening to the uterus uh, during pregnancy. And so if bacteria are able to degrade this, um, it may decrease the viscosity of that barrier and allow for ascending infection. We've also been able to show that in addition to these secreted um, molecules being degraded, that sialic acids are also degraded from the epithelial surfaces. Um, and so here um, you're seeing MAL2, which is a sialic acid binding lectin, um, you know, brightly stains the cell surfaces of uh, epithelial cells from women um, that do not have BV. But then from women with bacterial vaginosis, um, you don't see that green staining. Whereas uh, a, another lectin that recognizes terminal galactose residues um, is not evident, um, does not have evidence staining in women without BV, but has bright staining in women with BV. Um, so the, the epithelial surface um, and the glycans um, that, are, that are there are you know, inherently different in these two different contexts. And we've also been able to show this biochemically, that the glycans present on the cell surfaces are you know, that there's a depletion of the sialic acids present on both um, N-type glycans as well as O-type glycans. So I'm going to wrap up here um, by just trying to introduce the concept that it's not just um, sialidases that may be important, but that sialic acids are important in a whole variety of different host microbe interactions. So, you know, there are a number of organisms that, you know, can forage and degrade um, sialoglycans and use those um, molecules for energy. Um, there are others that bind to sialic acids or to other carbohydrate residues that may be underneath. Um, and then there are organisms that, that mimic um, sialic acids as well. And so, you know, when, when we're thinking about the ability of, you know, these sialidases in the context of bacterial vaginosis to degrade sialic acid molecules and deplete them from the mucosal surface, it begins to reveal all these different sorts of ideas about um, how sialic acid biology may change in this setting and how that may affect um, the physiology in humans. And as a final note on that, this is not my current area of study, but given that a number of other individuals at UCSD work on these sialic acid binding lectins called SIGLEX, um, I think it's going to be an important um, area of, of collaboration that may allow us to find new things about human evolution. 
Um, so it's already been shown that um, SIGLEX are, are rapidly evolving in the human lineage. Um, these molecules, these receptors bind to sialic acids and, and can signal within cells. And so when, again, thinking about the presence of sialidases within the cervical vaginal niche, um, what happens to the signaling of these SIGLEX when the sialic acids are depleted from those cell surfaces? Um, there are quite a lot of implications here, but um, we don't have uh, very much research yet, so um, that'll be a future direction. And so with that, I'll acknowledge um, individuals in my lab that have contributed to the data that I've shown you today, um, and, and also the Center for Women's Infectious Disease Research and the Center for uh, Reproductive Health Sciences at Washington University. Um, and with that, I will be happy to take your questions in the, um, the live stream question answer period. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.